So I'd like to begin this morning by drawing our attention and our memory back to a blockbuster hit movie that came out uh, about a year ago, uh, Black Panther. Um, it was really popular, you know, one of the superhero movies. And as superhero movies do, it, like, you know, all the rest of them ended with this, in climax, with this big battle scene at the end. So what's happened is, if you've, if you've seen it, and I assume it's most, if not all of us, there's two sides of, of people in this country called Wakanda, and there's a civil war battle at the end, because half of them are uh, fighting, or they're fighting and arguing about who is the true rightful king, and there's two groups, and they're fighting, and so it tears the country apart, they're at war with each other, and it also tears apart the one married couple in the movie who are named Okoye, the wife, and Wakabi, the husband. And so I just want to show a really brief scene of what happens between this couple during that war. So let's look up here. Did you kill me, my love? For Wakanda? Without question. So... (laughs) (laughs) Would you kill me, my love? For Wakanda without question. I know I'm a pastor. I know I watch movies differently than most people. I know that I'm always sensitive to things. I know I'm always paying attention. I know I'm always on the prowl for sermon illustrations. But when I saw this movie, I was like, please, did anybody else notice what just happened? So she's the, 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 the commander of the king's guard, loyal unto death, would put her life on the line for T'Challa. And, and, and she's a fan favorite. And everybody loves Okoye. But... Come on, right? Like, I will kill you without question, and you're my husband. Shouldn't have there at least been a line like, don't make me do this, with her like crying, like, I'm going to keep my vow, and I will kill you, but nope, it's without question. I don't know how many Christians watch this movie and notice the scene. I don't know if any of you notice the scene. Maybe it's like, oh, like that completely slipped my mind. That goes unnoticed. But what happens in life, in, in surround, especially with media and Hollywood and, and, and all the things that are surrounding us in this life that we're living, we are constantly bombarded with worldly messages left and right, uh, and sometimes about marriage, that are flying under the radar. And I think the reason why maybe you never noticed, this scene wasn't weird to you at the time, you may even admired her more because of that line. It's because when we're constantly in a particular environment surrounded by the same messages over and over, they become normalized to us. Nothing's out of the ordinary. There was nothing strange about that line that she just said. But if we start paying attention, we notice that there are constantly these different messages that are surrounding us, uh, uh, particular to the life that we're living, that is in contrast to how God feels about things. Today we're in week two of this short series on our principles of dating and marriage called Love One Another. And last week, maybe you weren't here, but in just short recap, I opened us in talking about how my objective is pretty simple. I want to take worldly advice and biblical wisdom and separate the two because 
they become mixed and intertwined. I talked about how the goal is for, the way that it should be is like oil and water, right? There's worldliness and there's godliness, and they have nothing to do with each other. They clash. They are completely separate and distinct. But I think when we aren't paying attention, what happens is we become a smoothie. It's not like oil and water, two liquids that cannot combine. It's a blended smoothie where everything is mixed together, where you cannot tell where one ingredient begins and one ends. There's no clarity. So the task is to separate the two, to uproot worldliness. Any worldliness that has settled inside of our hearts pertaining to, uh, to romance and, uh, and marriage, to uproot it and to separate it, and to set us on a course where it's only God's word that is leading our steps, our actions, our thoughts concerning marriage and the pursuit of it. So last week we talked about readiness and preparedness. Today, the second topic that I want to talk about is happiness, satisfaction. So I'm going to format the message in the exact identical way that I did last week. We opened up first with talking about what the world teaches, and then we talked about what God and the Bible teaches. What is worldly wisdom that we need to start uprooting and getting rid of? And what's godly wisdom that we ought to embrace and live by? So, happiness and satisfaction. What the world teaches, the worldly advice that I think we hear all the time is that happiness is found in a spouse who will meet all of your needs. I'm talking about phrases like this. Find someone who's going to make you happy. The best part of marriage is finding someone who's always going to take care of you. Things like this. Marriage is about having all your needs met by another person and being constantly served. You be however you want to be. Find the person who's going to accept you the way that you are and not ask you to change. If your spouse isn't making you happy, then you deserve better. Put yourself first. And lastly, you have to do what is best for you. So what the world teaches us and pushes is that the goal, the ultimate goal in getting married is finding someone who's going to meet all of your needs because that's when you're going to be the happiest. The ultimate goal is finding someone who's going to fulfill you, going to be a perfect match for all the things that you want and desire. So figure out what that list is. Create the list of of must-haves in an individual or in a romantic partner and then use that list as a measuring stick to hold everybody up to it to see if they measure up. We are taught to treat others based upon what they have to offer us. What are you going to do for me that I should date, engage, get engaged, or marry you? If there's a lot to gain, we receive them with open arms. And if they have nothing that you want, you treat them accordingly and you move on. And when that type of attitude and when those principles are accepted, adopted, received, and then even when they get cemented in our hearts in the church, there are seriously negative consequences that happen. I think the consequences of that is that we firstly start judging each other based upon our appearance. I think we criticize each other very strictly for our weaknesses and our flaws. I think we magnify the the gaps in our personality or the gaps in our maturity. I think we create standards that are impossible for anybody to achieve and then create a social system where people cannot measure up to your demands. We hold each other to a standard that we ourselves could not even attain. And we compare our partners, those of us who are in relationships, whether dating or, or married, we compare our partners with other people who you wish they were like. 
And I wish, we could say, I wish I could say that the church is immune to this, that we don't have the social currency, that we don't treat each other this way, that we aren't in the, on the prowl or on the search to find a husband, wife, boyfriend, girlfriend who's going to meet all of our needs and make me happy. But I think this definitely is an ingredient in the blended smoothie. We do treat each other this way. Sometimes directly, we just blatantly judge each other or we hold up a list and we're like, uh-uh, you don't measure up, and we just move on. But a lot of times, I think it's that we contribute to a culture that creates this feeling of heaviness and oppression on everyone, where we're in an environment where we're all trying to measure up to somebody else's expectations of whether you can fit their needs or not. And as a result, we become insecure, we become discouraged. So I created a name for this. You know how sociologists will see a phenomenon and name it? I, I named this. This is, this, is, this is TM, trademark, me. I call it the Bizarro Effect. Okay? So if you do not know who Bizarro is, Bizarro is a character that started with the Superman comics, and there's different forms of Bizarro, but as you look up here, he's sort of like a clone to Superman. Like, you'll notice that his S is backwards, and look at the real Batman and the, and the goofy dumb one. Like he, Bizarro is like the clumsy, dumbed-down, imperfect, clowny version of Superman who doesn't measure. He's the lesser Superman. And so I'm dubbing this the Bizarro effect for men to James Bond and women to Wonder Woman. Okay, so, so I'm going to explain this and see how we, we compare and measure up and what happens. So, so guys, you first. When we're in a culture when people are driven by this worldly advice that you need to measure up to these standards, you need to make them happy, the result is that you get insecure, you get discouraged, you get burdened, and you are not like James Bond. You are bizarro, James Bond. So let me explain. James Bond is handsome, he's tall, he's muscular. He's always in the best fitted suits. He's got a really nice British accent. Bizarro James Bond, on the other hand, he struggles to fit in his suit. It's either too small because he gained some weight over the years, or he can't, it's too big because he has a hand-me-down from his dad because he can't afford his own suit. Bizarro James Bond does not feel handsome or muscular. He feels uncomfortable and awkward in his own skin. He doesn't look good like this all the time in a nice suit. People judge him for always wearing basketball shorts and graphic t-shirts. <laughs> James Bond, he always succeeds at his mission. He does it alone. He does it without help. And he does it while breaking all the rules. He's always rogue and causing trouble. But he always succeeds. And at the end, no matter how many rules he broke or how many people he killed or pissed off, he's always praised and loved. Bizarro James Bond. He tries his hardest to follow all the rules. He asks his roommates and his friends and Pastor Danny for help. <laughs> Bizarro James Bond, he reads articles on DesiringGod.com and he even watched a Matt Chandler sermon on how to be intentional with dating. But he is not thanked in the end. He is judged in the end. Husband Bizarro James Bond, he just like is told, his wife talks to the other wives about how crappy he is and how he's not like James Bond. James Bond always gets the girl, doesn't he? And the girls always want him more than he wants them. Bizarro James Bond does not get the girl. <laughs> he either gets rejected or he put in the friend zone. You know what I'm saying? He's terrified to muster up the strength to ask a girl out because he's afraid that he's going to get crapped on. 
Real James Bond never gets hurt, and he always looks good. He's putting himself in harm's way. He drives an Aston Martin. He's doing flips and spins, and hundreds of bullets are coming in his way. But whoo, like he's never even hit. Bizarro James Bond drives a Honda or a Toyota. He gets parking tickets and flat tires, and he never dodges a bullet. All the single girls have the sniper rifle right on him, and they hit him every single time because he's a creep or he's unclear, he's unintentional. He's got scars all over his body. Sisters. Wonder Woman. When we are in a culture that everyone is telling you that you need to measure up and make them happy, you are oppressed, you are insecure, and you are broken. You are not Wonder Woman. You are bizarro Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman is tall. She's skinny. Perfect skin, perfect hair, large breasts. Her clothes always perfectly accentuate her physique. There is no outfit she cannot pull off. She can pull off street clothes. She can pull off a ball gown. She can pull off body armor. She still looks good in in body armor. Bizarre Wonder Woman, however, is constantly stressed about what she's going to wear, whether she can keep up with the latest fashion trends, whether she can keep up with the way that other women are dressing around her. She has to keep up financially to keep the cost up of looking good and has to worry about how they fit. She does not look good in body armor. Wonder Woman is a princess of the Amazons, a leader, a warrior who juggles numerous tasks, get everything done to perfection to the praise around her. She is the perfect representation of beauty, power, and respect. Bizarre woman, Wonder Woman, she's trying to stay afloat with all of her responsibilities poured on her, trying to be successful in career, try to raise a family and get married, other responsibilities that are pulling for her time, and she can barely have time for herself, not to mention she has the societal battle of unequal pay, unequal opportunity in the workplace. Wonder Woman is active, running around, saving the world, fighting bad guys, yet she always comes out with perfect hair, perfect makeup, and did you notice that she never sweats? Bizarre Wonder Woman, she hopes to make one spin class per week while not being the slowest person there displayed on the shame screen up front. She sits in the back so that the instructor won't notice her and that she's wearing a hat to cover her greasy hair because she didn't shower the night before. Wonder Woman is not hurt by men. Men are hurt by her. They feel small in her shadow, intimidated by her presence. Bizarre Wonder Woman wants to be respected by men and loved by a man who will protect her, but at the same time empower her and bring out the strength that she has within. But bizarre Wonder Woman is often scarred and wounded by childish men who snuff out fires more than lighting them. So I started off this message with simple, seemingly harmless phrases. Find someone who's going to make you happy. How did we get here? Got real serious real quick. See, one of the scariest things about worldly advice infiltrating the church is that it comes off subtle. And it tells us that it's not a big deal. And it may start off that way, but it grows and it starts to take root. Then it becomes accepted and taught, and then it balloons into something that's much greater and much damaging. When we are taught to put our needs first, to find someone who's going to make me happy and put others second, find someone who's going to fit your criteria, what we're doing is we're creating a culture of selfishness, and then we normalize it, and then we justify it. And selfishness, let me tell you, is one of the greatest plagues in the church. It is not at all subtle, 
It is not at all a small deal. It is a big, big deal. It destroys churches, communities, small groups, friendship relationships, families, and certainly dating relationships and marriage. Selfishness is the seed of discord that creeps its way in and it can damage everything in its wake. And where I get fearful is not just when it's present, but when we encourage it. When we're the ones telling each other to be that way. So maybe this, the, the phrases I used to start this message were harmless and, and, and subtle, but then it starts to turn to this. It starts with, oh, put yourself first. Think about you. And then it becomes, she's not good enough for you. It becomes, he doesn't even deserve you. Why should you lose out? Make her do it. Why should it be his way? It should be your way. Why does she always get to decide? You make the call. Put your foot down. Give them an ultimatum. We're just puffing up our selfishness and our pride. And you know what? They've, it's been disguised as, as encouragement. We say this to each other, and we feel like our friends are loving us. They've got our back. They're encouraging us with good wisdom. Really, we're just telling each other to be selfish. And this is the power that it has. It can be right in front of our eyes, and yet we don't even notice that worldliness is something that we're accepting and digesting and holding on to. And, and it's easy to act, I mean, it's difficult at the moment, but let me show you that it's actually easy to see. And so I want to kind of give us this scenario to potentially open up our spiritual eyes. I'm going to keep the phrases that I just used exactly the same, and all I'm going to do is change the relationship, change the scenario. Okay, we have a romantic couple. No, we're going to put that aside. Let's just use different scenarios, but the same language. So let's say there's conflict between Christian friends here. You're fighting, you've said some things poorly about, or bad about each other, you've hurt each other, you've stabbed each other in the back, and there's conflict, and you go to another person, another Christian brother or sister to vent about what's happening. Now imagine if the advice that you got was, is she's not good enough for you. He doesn't deserve you. Cut him off. Let's say there's conflict in a ministry team. You're in the welcoming team together, worship ministry, co-CG leaders in young adult ministry or family ministry, co-campus leaders in college ministry, and you're, you're fighting and you're, you're conflict, and then you speak to one of the pastors or a leader, and we come up to you and we were to say, you know what, put yourself first. You have to do what's best for you. Let's say there's two people at odds in a small group and they risk breaking fellowship, and someone were to advise you, put your foot down. Give them an ultimatum. Have you ever heard something like that before? I have never once been a part of or seen a small group member who's just judgy and says, oh, this CG sucks and this, da, 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 and like complaining about it. And where the leader would be like, you know what? You're right. Put yourself first. You have to do what's best for you. Cut those people out of your life and go find a small group that fits your needs perfectly and conveniently. They don't deserve you. I've never heard that before. And that's actually something that I'm so proud of, all of you at Cornerstone, because what I hear all of you in the, in the leadership team and the pastors say all the time are these really great encouragements. Things like, hey, let's not be consumers first. Things like, be patient, forgive, swallow your pride. Be the bigger person and say sorry first. Don't wait for them to initiate. Just go and apologize or forgive each other. Many of you even come up to us, to the pastors, and you're like, hey, we're having conflict that we cannot overcome. Can you help mediate for us? And I'm so proud of our community for how we do this. 
Because in all sorts of relationships in this body, we have gotten so good at encouraging each other to lower ourselves and to serve. So why is it then then the most important of all relationships, we encourage each other to be selfish and prideful. (laughs) Marriage is the most important relationship you will ever have in your life. More than your small group, more than your co-CG leader, more than your co-welcoming team member, more than your small group friends. It's marriage. So we've gotten so good at encouraging humility in all other areas. Why do we encourage selfishness in the most important one? You see, when when we allow this type of environment to exist among us, it digs us into a hole because then we become people who constantly need to be fed. You need to make me happy. And then we grow bitter. We become demanding. We become judgmental. And then you know what happens at the end of that? We become so unhappy. We're so unhappy. And yet the advice is, you'll be happy when you find someone to meet your needs. You're going to be happy when you find someone who's so good for you. It's terrible advice. I've never met anybody in my life who simultaneously prioritized their selfishness and they grew in their happiness at the same rate. Do you know anybody like that? Who who judges and measures everything up to how it makes them feel and they actually get happier? I I mean, I I haven't seen it. So this is the worldly advice. That's terrible advice. So what is the godly wisdom that we need? What is the godly wisdom that we need and that we should submit ourselves before? Let's open our hearts and receive from God's word in Philippians 2. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. What the Bible says, what biblical wisdom says about Romance about dating, about life. You know, as I mentioned last week, the Bible is not a guide on romance, but this definitely matters to romance, is this. Happiness is found in putting the needs of your partner above your own. This passage is very familiar to, to, to many of us. It's called the Christ hymn. And the reason why it's, it's particularly famous is because it's, it's kind of seen as Paul's like greatest, one of his greatest pieces of like art. It wasn't just like, you know, this writing. It's a poem. 
And somehow with this beautiful language and this flow that he creates in, in, when he, as he was penning it, he combines teaching to the church on how we ought to live and the commands while pairing it with gospel, with the good news, with sharing what Jesus did and who he is. And so it's in this poem that we are received the call to be like Jesus and that he was the example. He talks about what he did. In verses 6 through 8, he says, Jesus, who being in very nature God, he's God himself, right? But he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Verse 7, rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So Jesus is fully God, but instead of exercising his power, he makes himself the lowest and becomes a servant. And it's already a greatest display of humility as it is. But then it goes further. In verse 8, he says he dies on a cross. He humbles himself, and then Jesus, who is perfect and sinless, dies a gruesome death that was reserved for the worst of humanity, the worst of criminals, the worst of people. We are called to have that same mindset. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, church, listen, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Last week, I said that our readiness and preparedness is found in our Christ-likeness. Firstly, we are to prepare ourselves for marriage by growing to be like Jesus. And now it's just a continuation. Because secondly, we experience the greatest happiness in romance and marriage by living like Jesus. And he lived a life of humility and service to others. Now, some of us are thinking, how does... Yeah, that sounds spiritual and that sounds nice and maybe you're convincing me with fancy language. But at the end of the day, when I'm Monday through Saturday living in a place where I'm constantly losing, how could that possibly make me happy? And I can completely understand why all of us might think that cognitively. But I want to argue that all of us emotionally and experientially actually know that what I'm saying is true. So think about a relationship that you've had conflict. It doesn't have to be romantic. It can be any relationship friend, it could be a stranger, it could be roommate, your parents, your siblings, whatever, anybody, and think about a time, imagine it, where you're you're bitter, you're angry, they did something, they won't give in, you're, you're arguing with each other, or you're giving each other the silent treatment. Now imagine this setting that you're in, of just being bitter, and and just like not being happy with them, and just like, you know, stewing in your in your self-righteousness. Aren't you miserable in that scenario? When I'm being selfish in my marriage and and having all these great demands and I'm arguing with my wife, my life sucks at that time. I don't know about you. I am miserable. I am not at all happy for demanding my way. I have never once like demanded stuff from her and I'm like, whoo, like life is awesome right now. My life is bad. We just create stress and fights and pain and division. Now think about it on the other, way, on the other side, the flip side. When you're in relationships, it can, again, it can be any single relationship, when they're doing really, really well, isn't it when everyone is serving each other? When you've been happiest in your marriage and your friendship relationships with your parents, with your siblings, with your roommates, isn't it when everyone has each other's back and is serving and is looking out for each other's good? 
doing things as favors for each other and getting each other's each other gifts and and doing things going out of the way to serve isn't that when you're actually happiest isn't our happiness so often paired and tied to when humility is thriving in relationship and those of us specifically to those of us who are married When your marriage is best and at its peaks, when it's doing the best, isn't it when you're thinking about how to treat your spouse well and not when you're demanding that they be a better spouse to you? Isn't that true? See, worldly advice tells us to look inward and to feed our egos. But true biblical wisdom says that our truest happiness, pleasure, and satisfaction in romance is found in giving. It's found in humility and service. True happiness is found, in marriage, is found in humbly serving. Not in finding someone who's going to do everything for you and meet all your needs and make you happy. True happiness is found when we are humbly serving one another. So let's choose godly wisdom. Let's choose the pursuit of real happiness in romance. Let's apply this word that Paul gives us in Philippians 2. And this is our application point, pretty simply. Humble yourself and look out for the interests of others. And for today, I want to actually address us separately. Last week, I just meshed us all together. But I want to address single people and married people separately in this application up here. So those of you who are single, humbly serve each other. Let's treat each other other humbly in the pursuit. All of you and all of us to some element are experiencing the stress of being single. Maybe the pressure or the loneliness or insecurity is some form of that. Let's serve each other in this setting, in this call that we have currently in our lives. So often we measure singlehood experience with how people treat us, right? We expect the people who pursue us or to go on dates with us or accept us or reject us to do it in the perfect way. But what if our singles experience, we flipped it and everyone was looking out for how the other people's experience was and how they felt? How might that change the way that we accept, go on dates, even reject? I think it means this in humbly serving each other in singleness is stop gossiping. I hope Pastor Bill talks about that later, but just in case he doesn't, we talk. Let me just say, Cornerstone, you talk too much. Stop talking about each other and disrespecting each other's privacy. Stop cutting each other down. It's not making any of your lives easier when you're single and everyone is talking about you. I'm married, and I, but I actually get emotional about this, and that's why my voice is starting to raise. I'm going to bring myself down. Because I take it personally... Because I hear it from all of you all the time, and you feel the pain of it, but then everyone contributes to it. Stop gossiping about each other. Don't cut each other down with your words. Respect other people's privacy. We do not have the license to go around and talk about other people to our friends just because something may have happened to you. If you're pursuing someone, do it honorably. Communicate clearly and respectfully. Make intentions clear and open and invite them in rather than just dropping a bomb on their plate. If you're rejecting someone, do it kindly. Recognize that this person is vulnerable right now and they, they have feelings for you. So when you reject them, like understand where they're at. 
Essentially, it's simply put this way. If you had a younger sibling or a best friend, how would you want somebody to either accept them, ask them out on a date, or reject them from a date? How would you want that to be done to them? Do it in that way to each other. Put others above yourself by caring for them in their experience. And do it joyfully because you know and believe that being humble and treating others with love is a greater source of happiness than someone doing it perfectly for you. Married folks, and some, and some of this will also, uh, I guess I, um, you know, the people in relationships, there are a lot of ways we can humble ourselves and put the needs of our spouse above our own. And I'm just, I just, like, just vomited a list here, and it's going to start from really surface level that actually, you and I, those of you who are married, you know that even the surface level stupid things sometimes are the most important things, all the way to the more serious ones. So something as simple as letting them choose uh, what you're going to do on date night, what movie you're going to watch, what you're going to eat for dinner. Maybe a little bit more seriously, which set of friends to hang out with next. Maybe doing the chores. You may have split responsibilities, but maybe doing your spouse's ones. Who's going to take the dog out for a walk when you're both lazy and tired? Where are you going to go on vacation? Maybe you have conflicting views on how to spend money. Who gets to go out with their friends while the other has to stay home and watch the baby solo? Who's going to wake up in the middle of the night and do more feedings or, or diaper changes? Which family are you going to spend more time with on the holidays? Whose career is going to be the biggest swaying thing of where you work, where you live, what community you're part of, how much money you make. These are just common, everyday examples that are just a simple answer to the question, what is something that requires some sacrifice from you of your wants so that your spouse can feel loved? Married people, what's an argument that you're having right now that you can humbly yield and lose in joyfully? People who are in relationships, What's something that you can let go of right now so that your significant other can get what they want and that'll make them happy? And we do this not reluctantly or begrudgingly. We do it joyfully. Because you know and believe that being humble is better than getting your own way. And it is a greater source of joy in your life to see your spouse happy than to demand that they make you happy. Up here is a famous building that I think every one of you are, uh, know um, is the Taj Mahal. It's in India, one of the most famous icons of love, right? In the 1600s, the emperor commissioned it to be, uh, he built it, this, this, this emperor, right, and commissioned it to be the home of the tomb of his wife who had passed away, whom he loved. And so it attracts millions of tourists every year, one of the most famous and beautiful buildings ever made, and people just flock from all around the world to see it, to admire its beauty, and also because of the symbolic nature of it. This like fantastic, like amazing, like awe-inspiring building was meant to be a reflection of how great he loved his wife and how awesome she is that she deserves this type of tomb. So most of us know that, but what many of us do not know is that in, starting in 2016, experts started to realize that the Taj Mahal started turning green. And it's not like, you know, we have like a bunch of green buildings and cities, right? Like when there's like rust. It's made out of white marble. So it's not like, like steel or iron, like rusting. It's turning green because of bug poo. 
The author of the article said insect excrement, but I'm going to say bug poo. So this undying, like, forever, like, icon building of romantic love is turning green because of poop. A newspaper writer says this, the intricate marble work of the 17th century monument must be scrubbed daily for its signature whiteness to be maintained. So staff workers every day are literally scrubbing away crap to keep it beautiful and white. And I, I mean, I was like, how do they get all the way up there? But I, I don't know, they're just scrubbing it. So I, 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 not to like cynically, but like, you know, when I think of, when I thought of the Taj Mahal before, I'm like, yeah, it is really beautiful, but like any rich, if you're an emperor and you have everything at your disposal, you can make a, a, a fantastic building and say that, oh, it's for my love for you, right? And I was like, yeah, I get it. It is, a, it is a, like a symbol of love. But then I read this article and I was like, that is definitely a symbol of love. Because there's a daily commitment and people are cleaning up, I want to use the S word, every day to keep it beautiful. That's love. The Taj Mahal now, in my opinion, is the building that represents love. Not only is it grand and beautiful on the outside, but in order to keep it white and stain-free and beautiful, it takes a daily commitment from people scrubbing the crap away. Tim Keller, he, he says the purpose of marriage and, and, and the beauty of marriage is that it's meant to be a re, it's, it's the relationship that is the closest reenactment of the gospel. He says this, uh, the way that Jesus showed you and me spousal love was this. He loved me not because I was lovely or lovable, but in order to make me lovely and lovable. Jesus' love was not because we deserved it. He loved us and came to humbly serve us. And this is our task as we close this Serious friends. Our role is to follow in the footsteps of our Savior and through our marriages to reenact the gospel of Jesus. To love our spouses, not because they are lovely and lovable, but to love them so that they will become lovely and lovable. We scrub away the poop that oftentimes is ours. We humble ourselves, we put their needs first. And we work on it daily to make it beautiful. So true happiness in marriage is found in humbly serving. Let us have the same mindset as Christ Jesus and value others' needs above our own. Let's bow in prayer now and commit ourselves to him in this way. Jesus, in all things we look to you. We can talk about romance. We can talk about work, friendships, prayer, spiritual disciplines. We can be in a sermon series on justice, on a book of the Bible. We can be in the summer or the spring. It doesn't matter. All things, we start and end with you. We look to you. We give you thanks and praise. We behold who you are. And we want to remind ourselves of the good news. We want to remind ourselves that you were fully God, yet did not consider equality with God to be something to use to your advantage, but rather you took on the form of a servant becoming man. And then you died humbly on a cross. So you were never married, and we can't look at marriage principles from your exact actions. 
but we have so much more than we could possibly need by looking at your character and the way that you humbly love your children. And we want to be current or future spouses that are just like that. So Spirit, work in us where we are weak. Strengthen us where we are unable to do on our own. Give us the energy and the, and the commitment and, and the gusto maybe even in putting this as a priority and a commitment. Teach us to ready ourselves by putting our character and Jesus-like character first. And secondly, help us to practice and to live out our, our Christ-like character by putting others' needs above ourselves. Whether currently in our marriages today or if we're not married yet in preparation for our marriage in the future by doing it to all the other relationships that we have in life. May your word, may your wisdom be the only thing that we stand upon. The only thing that feeds our souls. And would you by your mercy uproot any worldliness that has settled in our hearts. If we are bitter if we are hardened, would you soften us and would you do the surgery that's necessary there? And would you make every single person in this church a servant of the living God who desires to be a disciple, a godly man or woman who follows and chases after Jesus in his likeness. And I pray for every marriage, whether current or future, that it would thrive because we love you and you show us how to love each other. God, we recognize that there's a lot of pain in marriage too. We recognize that sometimes marriage can bring out the worst in us and we experience lots and lots of pain. Some of us are going through that now. Some of us will go through that in the future. And we know that the remedy is not brushing it under the rug or sucking it up or clenching our teeth. The remedy is not venting to our friends and, 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 and them just patting us on the back. The remedy is not winning. The remedy is looking to you and seeing that the road to happiness is humbly submitting ourselves before one another and loving. So would you grow that in each and every one of us as you showed us perfectly We seek to emulate you, Jesus. We're desperate for you. We need you to do that work in our hearts and our lives. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.